0: Good evening, saints, and greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is good to see you, and it's very good to be here with you to conclude this Lord's Day in the worship of Almighty God. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will begin reading in verse number 3. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We bless you, O Lord our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and thank you for your mercy and your grace that you have lavished on us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we thank you that in eternity past, you chose us to be your children, and in the fullness of time, you accomplished our salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, O God, for sending your spirit to us to apply Christ and his saving benefits to us. And Father, we ask this evening as we look at the Holy Scriptures that you would send your spirit into our hearts and bring illumination to our hearts that we may rightly understand your word and give us your grace to be doers of your word and not hearers only. For we ask this in Christ's holy name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this evening by making a few general remarks about the passage as a whole. It's certainly one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the Bible. You can almost imagine Paul singing these words rather than simply writing them. And one of my favorite theologians is Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, and Warfield once said that these words of Scripture should never be read in church. They should always be sung. This passage of Scripture is not simply prose, it's praise. It's essentially a hymn of praise that blesses God the Father, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing to the praise of his glory. And that's how the passage begins. It begins with praise, and it also ends with praise, to the praise of his glory, verse 14. And so it is, in fact, a prayer of praise. Now, the Jews refer to this kind of prayer as a barakah, and there are many examples of that kind of prayer in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. You might think, for example, of Psalm 103. Aberakah is the kind of prayer that begins by blessing God and then proceeds to recount with thanksgiving the blessings with which God has blessed us. Blessed be the God who has blessed us. And how exactly has God blessed us? Well, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing including the following, which Paul lists in this prayer. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, verse 4. He predestined us for adoption, verse 5. He redeemed us through Christ, through the blood of Christ, verse 7, and forgave our trespasses. He sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13, and so on. And so this passage of Scripture is a prayer of praise, And it's only one prayer. It's a very long prayer, but it's only one prayer. And in fact, in the original language, it is only one sentence. It's a very long sentence, a run-on sentence, but one sentence. Our English versions divide up this sentence into several sentences to make it easier for us to understand, but in the original, it's only one long sentence. Now, in Paul's day, it was not uncommon to find long sentences like this, but even by ancient standards, it's a very long sentence, 202 words in the original language. And so it's as if Paul begins to praise God, and then suddenly he gets caught up in the moment as he begins to list the many wonderful blessings that God has lavished on us in his son, Jesus Christ, until he simply runs out of breath after proclaiming these 202 words of pure praise, pure doxology. Now that's why this passage is so beautiful. It is a hymn of praise which blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us beyond measure to the praise of his glorious grace. And so that's why it feels like we should be singing these words rather than simply reading them. It is praise. It is doxology. It's Paul's doxology. The word doxology simply means praise. And we are familiar with the word doxology because we sometimes sing the doxology in church. And if you're familiar with that doxology used in church, you know that it has a Trinitarian reference in it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's the Trinity. We give our praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you may also have noticed that Paul's doxology here in Ephesians chapter 1 likewise refers to each person of the Holy Trinity. In verse 3, he refers to the Father and the Son. Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Father and the Son. And in verse 13, he refers to the Holy Spirit. In him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And in fact, he also refers to the Holy Spirit at the beginning in verse 3. The word spiritual in verse 3 should be capitalized because it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Of course, the word spiritual can be used to mean non-physical or immaterial, but that's not the meaning that it has here. What makes the blessings spiritual that Paul's talking about, what makes those blessings spiritual is not that they are non-material, but that they are conferred on us by the agency of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives them to us. So the Holy Spirit is the agent who confers the blessings to us by working faith in our hearts and thereby uniting us to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all these spiritual blessings are found and freely given to us by God's grace. And so it's in that sense that the blessings are said to be spiritual. They are given, they are conferred by the Holy Spirit, and the context of Ephesians chapter 1 will make that clear as God helping us, we will see in a few minutes, And so the opening words of the prayer refer to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the introduction to the prayer, and that introduction also serves as the topic sentence that introduces the content of what follows in the body of this prayer of praise. The Trinitarian reference in verse 3 provides a Trinitarian framework for the rest of the prayer. The body of the prayer, verses 4 through 14, has three distinct parts. Part 1 is verses 4 through 6, part 2, verses 7 through 12, and part 3, verses 13 and 14. And each part highlights the role of each person of the Trinity in the work of salvation. Part one highlights the role of the Father who planned our salvation, quote, before the foundation of the world, verse four. Part two highlights the role of the Son who accomplished our salvation through his blood in the fullness of time. That's verses seven through 12. And part three highlights the role of the Holy Spirit with whom we are sealed until the day of redemption. That's verses 13 and 14. And you'll notice that Paul closes each of these three parts with essentially the same words, to the praise of his glory. He repeats that three times, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. Now that's called a seal. It's a short doxology that closes a prayer or that marks off divisions within a long prayer, to the praise of his glory. And so the body of the prayer has three distinct parts with each part focusing on the role of each person of the Trinity in the work of salvation. Paul's prayer is a thoroughly Trinitarian prayer, and Christian worship is thoroughly Trinitarian. It is the worship of the Father in spirit and truth. Worship is a work of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ to the glory of God the Father. And there's something else that we should notice about these three parts of the prayer. Paul not only moves from the first person of the Trinity, the Father, to the second person of the Trinity, the Son, to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But Paul also advances along historical lines. He begins with what happened in eternity past before the foundation of the world. That's part one, verses four through six. And from there, he moves forward to what took place in the fullness of time when Christ redeemed us through his blood. That's part two, verses seven through 12. And finally, he ends with what happened in the lives of the Ephesians, his original readers, when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed. That's part three, verses 13 and 14. And so Paul moves along historical lines. He moves from eternity past to the cross on which Jesus died, and then to the pulpit, we might say, where the gospel of Christ is preached. And those three things are distinct from each other, and they take place at different times, but they are also inseparably connected to each other, and each one is indispensable in bringing us into a state of salvation. Now, I think that's important because, as some of you may know, uh, those who deny the doctrine of election or predestination that Paul covers in this passage of Scripture often raise the objection that if God has eternally predestined our salvation then the death of Jesus on the cross would be unnecessary and or the preaching of the gospel to the lost would be unnecessary. If our salvation has been predetermined, if it has been foreordained by God, then why do we need the cross? And why do we need preaching? Why do we need evangelism? Why do we need missions? And that objection is somehow supposed to prove that the doctrine of eternal election or predestination is untrue, because Scripture clearly teaches that the death of Jesus on the cross was absolutely necessary for our salvation, and also that preaching is necessary for our salvation, Romans 10, for example. And if that's the case, then our salvation must not have been predetermined by God, so the argument goes. But Paul doesn't see it that way, does he? He doesn't see it that way at all. Not at all. Paul sees no conflict or tension whatsoever in saying, in his prayer of praise here, in part one, that God has elected us. He has elected us before the foundation of the world and predestined us for adoption. And then saying in part two that the death of Christ on the cross is what accomplished our salvation. And then in part three, saying that it was through the preaching of the gospel that the Ephesians were saved. Paul moves from eternity past, when God predestined our salvation, to the cross, when Jesus died to accomplish our salvation, and then to the pulpit, where the gospel of salvation was proclaimed to the Ephesians, who, when they heard and believed in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so all three things you can see are necessary and indispensable in turn in bringing us into a state of salvation. Were it not for God's eternal election, were it not for his eternal predestination, we would not be saved. And were it not for Christ's redeeming blood shed on the cross for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, we could not be saved. And were it not for the power of the Holy Spirit who produces faith in us through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would not be saved. All three things are necessary. All three things are indispensable to our salvation. The work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit producing faith in our hearts and uniting us to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And so Paul moves through each of those three stages in his prayer, this hymn of praise. Now, to use theological terminology here, we can say that Paul begins with the covenant of salvation in eternity past, part one. From all eternity, God planned our salvation, and he entered into a covenant with his Son and the Spirit to redeem us. He purposed our redemption before the foundation of the world. That's part one, the covenant of salvation. But in part two, he moves to the history of salvation, the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation, when God accomplished our salvation through the redeeming blood of Christ. And then in part three, the final section, he concludes with the order of salvation, the Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation, when the finished work of Christ is applied to the elect by the power of the Holy Spirit. So first there is redemption purposed, eternity past, redemption accomplished in time, and then redemption applied to us by the Spirit. The purposing of our redemption, the accomplishment of our redemption, and the application of redemption. God has accomplished all of these things. Now the first two stages are complete. The third stage, the application of salvation, is ongoing. The Holy Spirit continues to apply the saving work of Christ today, and he will continue to do that until the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the end of the world. So our salvation has been predestined by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and now the Holy Spirit has to apply that salvation to us in order to bring us into a state of salvation. And there you can see the point I was making earlier about verse 3. The word spiritual in verse 3 refers to the Holy Spirit, the agency of the Spirit who actually applies the benefits of the saving work of Christ to us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Spirit is the one who applies the redemption purposed by the Father and accomplished by the Son. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out about this prayer of praise, Paul's doxology. Each part, parts one, two, and three, each part ends with the the saying, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, and one time to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, that repeated doxology points up the reason why God has purposed and accomplished and applied salvation to us. God has saved us to the praise of his glory. God has saved us for his own glory. God glorifies himself in each stage of his work of salvation. His work of salvation from its purposing to its accomplishment to its application has all been to the praise of his glory. And with that in mind, it's easy to see that any doctrine of salvation that takes glory away from God by attributing some of the credit for salvation to human beings, is altogether contrary to the purpose of salvation, which is to glorify God and him alone. Salvation is to the glory of God alone, soli deo gloria. That's the banner stretched over the whole history of salvation. And that, friends, calls us for an exclusively God-centered and God-honoring doctrine of salvation And it also calls us to this. It calls us to an exclusively God-centered and God-honoring life. We are to live to the praise of his glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief end of worship is to glorify God. The chief end of preaching is to glorify God. The chief end of prayer is to glorify God. The chief end of life and of everything that we do in life Whatever it is, is to glorify God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All of life is to be lived to God's glory. Our every thought, our every act, and our every, every utterance should serve the glory of God. That's the reason for our existence and for the existence of everything else. God made us and all things for his own glory. And the redemption purchased by, or purposed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit, restores and perfects that original purpose of creation. That's the reason Paul doesn't merely tell us what God did to save us, he expresses it in a hymn of praise. He expresses it in a doxology, to the praise of God's glory. Worship is the most important thing that we do in life. It's the most important thing we do in life. The most important thing you can possibly do in life is worship God because everything in life is ordered to that end. Everything in life is ordered to the praise of his glory. Everything has a doxological end. Everything has a, serves a doxological purpose. And nothing is more basic to our identity as creatures made in God's image than doxology. Doxology. Adam's first thought, his first thought, when God made man in his own image, when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living creature, his first thought was doxology. Adam's first word was praise. His first impulse from the moment he took his first breath was to sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. So nothing, friends, is more basic to our identity as image-bearing creatures than to ascribe to the Lord glory and praise, to worship him in the beauty of holiness. And as Christians, as believers, united to the Lord Jesus Christ through spirit-gifted faith and recreated in the image of God, in Christ Jesus, in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness, Nothing, absolutely nothing, is more basic to our nature, our renewed nature, as a new creation in Christ. Nothing is more basic to our nature than the worship of God. God has saved us to the praise of his glory, and so, beloved people of God, let us live to the praise of his glory through Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we give you praise and thanks for all that you have done for us and accomplished for us and applied to us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit. We thank you, O oh Lord, our God, that you have created us in your image and after your likeness, that you created us to have fellowship and communion with you, that you revealed yourself to us as our creator and our sustainer, as our consummator. And, Father, we give you praise and thanks that you have redeemed us in Jesus Christ and have recreated us in your image and have brought us into fellowship and communion with you in Christ by your Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to serve you and to be faithful worshipers of you, to serve you with all of our thoughts and our words and our actions. We pray, Father, that our lives, the whole of our lives, and every part of our lives would be ordered to the praise of your glory. Father, we ask that you would make us faithful servants of you through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.